Well, good morning, church. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. And if you do not own a Bible and you would like one, there's one in the seat pocket in front of you, a paperback version. You can take that. That's our gift to you if you need a copy of God's Word. And the words will be on the screen in just a few minutes. But you guys know if you've been here, we're walking through 1 Timothy together. Uh, hopefully you've been reading through this on your own and talking through this in your life groups in different places. So 1 Timothy chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. So why don't you go ahead and find your place there. And I'm going to read a couple verses in just a few minutes. But let me, let me kind of set up the context so you know where we're going this morning. Uh, I don't know exactly how it operates in your family, but in my family at home, we have specific family responsibilities. All families that are healthy families have certain responsibilities. I, I have parental responsibilities. I'm a dad. I have a responsibility. You know, it's important that my kids are fed, or that they have clothes and a warm house, and there are responsibilities that I have in the family. And the kids have responsibilities of the way they respond to their parents and the way they do their chores and household assignments. You say, your kids have chores. You better believe it. they got a big old list of chores. Family responsibilities. Some of those chores are more glamorous than others, and some of those chores want to kind of be avoided, whether it's taking out the trash or cleaning up after the dog or whatever it is. But we have family responsibilities. One of the ideas of being a part of a family is that you have family responsibilities. That's one of the ideas of what it means to be part of a family. For example, if we have a guest over to our house that's not a part of our family, they don't walk in the door and we hand them a bag and say, you need to go out in the backyard and clean them after the dog. Why? Well, they're not part of the family. It's not a family responsibility. But within the family... One of the ideas of being connected, of being in, is there are family responsibilities. Now, Paul's going to talk about that a little bit here in chapter 5. He's writing a letter to a church, as you guys know. He's writing to Timothy, who is the leader, the pastor of the church. And in chapter 5, he's talking about several specific responsibilities that the church has toward one another. Now, there's three of them here. We're not going to deal with all of them this morning. We're actually only going to deal with one. We'll be in the rest of chapter 5 ongoing next week and, and continuing. But in chapter 5, he deals with three specific family responsibilities. One of them that we're not going to talk about this morning, but I'll hit it real quick, is the idea that we care for one another. Specifically in the middle of the chapter, he's talking about widows, those who are vulnerable or those who can't take care of themselves. Maybe their family is unable to take care of them. So as a part of the church family, Paul says, look, one of the responsibilities of the church family is to take care of those within the family who can't take care of themselves. That's true for us. That's true for any church. That's why through our deacons and through our life groups and different areas of ministry, we try to take care of those who may be unable to take care of themselves. Then he gets to the end of the chapter and he says within the church, it's the responsibility of the church to care for your leaders and to take, care, take good care of your leaders and admonish and encourage and challenge your leaders, but take care of your leaders. But back at the beginning of the chapter, Paul takes two verses. We have it in our translations as two verses. And he's going to talk about a very specific, and I'll just go ahead and tell you, a very challenging responsibility that is all of ours within the church family. 
And I'll just go ahead and say this this morning, and I'm going to make it even really personal for us at Tri-Cities. When I was reading through this and praying through this, and pastors have been praying about this, our elders have been praying about this, when we come to this passage, we realize this is an area, this is a particular focus that for us as Tri-Cities, we need to grow in. Just being as clear as I can be, this is an area when, as one of your pastors and one of your shepherds that loves you and wants us to thrive and wants us to be healthy and wants us to, like we read earlier, be the kind of church that says, okay, here's what God's Word says. How are we, Lord, by your Spirit, by your power, help us to, to follow and align with what your Word is telling us and encouraging us for our good, for our flourishing, for our nourishing. Paul's going to tackle an issue here in two verses that, quite frankly, we need to grow in. Okay, Pastor Mike, I hear all that, so what is it? So follow with me. I'm going to read it here, 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, and then we'll give you one big idea that we're wrestling with this morning and pursuing this morning as a church family. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, here's what Paul says. To young Timothy, who was probably in his 30s at that point, Paul says this, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. To younger men as brothers, to older women you deal with as mothers, like your mom. Younger women, Timothy, you deal with them as like a sister in all purity, for obvious reasons, he's saying. And you say, okay, I hear that. I don't really see the family responsibility you're getting at here. What's the big idea that Paul is trying to tackle here? You've you got to hear the family language. Fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. So he's talking very much of a family dynamic. You understand the church throughout the New Testament is referred to as a family. We function as a family. So, Paul, what are you talking about here? Let me give you the big idea that Paul is dealing with here. I'm going to put it up on the screen and be very clear. Here it is. Within a healthy church family, that's what we desire to be, continue to pursue that. Brothers and sisters, that's who we are, consistently and lovingly confront sin in one another's lives. Now, I know <laughs> that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Paul says, listen, Timothy, don't sharply rebuke an older man. He doesn't say don't rebuke an older man, but he's saying deal reverently and with great respect when you have to go to an older gentleman. If it's an older lady, deal with her like she's your mom with great respect and great care. Younger men, you treat like a brother. I mean, you... You deal with them like a brother, like you would a brother in love. Younger women, like sisters in all purity. In other words, within a family dynamic, Paul is saying this. Within a healthy church, this is us, this is you, this is me. We are consistently and lovingly confronting sin in one another's lives. Now, I think one of the reasons, there's probably a couple reasons that this makes us a little bit uncomfortable is we don't talk about it a lot. 
I think one of the other reasons is, let's just own it, we're from the South, all right? We're all in the South. I grew up in the South. I was gone for about 15 years, and then we came back. A lot of you grew up in the South. Some of you didn't. So if you did not grow up in the South, you get it. When you step into the South, you step into a Southern hospitality culture, right? It's here. It's a good thing. I love to sit on the porch and somebody bring me sweet tea and, you know, just say, oh, I love Southern hospitality. Here's what Southern hospitality says. We want everyone to feel completely comfortable, and we don't want to make anybody uncomfortable in any way. So sometimes a culture like that spills over into our thinking, and we might come to a passage like this, and we said, wait a minute, if I go to my brother or sister in Christ, and I'm very... uh, confrontational or loving with them and I put my arm around them and I point out something in their life that's not healthy or good for them they're going to be uncomfortable and they might not like me and my goal as a good southerner so to speak is that we don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers and that's a tendency for all of us let me give you another reason I think we struggle with this idea because it's been greatly abused There are those who hear the passages about confrontation and they take on the mantle of, okay, it's my job to confront everybody, whether I know them or not, whether they're in the church or not. Man, if I see sin, I'm all over it. I'm coming after you. That's not the idea. That's not the spirit of it at all. Sometimes I think we struggle with this as well because of the spirit of our age that we live in. There's a mantra that goes around, and maybe you've said it and we all hear it. It's this, well, you know... Who am I to judge? I mean, if, if I see something in my brother's life, then who am I to, to maybe call them out and say something in their life is not godly or it's not pleasing to the Lord or not good for them? Who am I to judge? Let me apply that to another area of life and see if maybe you change your thinking a little bit on it. I'm a dad. I'm a dad to a bunch of kids. That's awesome. I love it. I have an 18-year-old. He's driving If some of you came to me, and by the way, if you see this, please come to me. And you come to me and you say, hey, i got to tell you something about Josh. Every time I pass him on the road, he's got that cell phone up and he's looking at it and he's texting while he's driving. He's like this. And you come to me as a dad. And my response is, well, you know what? I really don't want to upset him. Or if I go to him, it might make him uncomfortable, so we're just going to be quiet about it. Or if I were to say, well, you know, who am I to judge? Occasionally I'm talking on the phone every now and then, something like, I mean, who? Listen, no parent in this room deals with their children like that. You know why? Watch this. Because they're family. And you love them. We just had a conversation with our 18-year-old son last night. Son, if, you, if we hear of you and you've got that phone up in your ear and you're talking and driving, the phone goes away. It wasn't a, well, if you wouldn't mind, son, listen. Why? Because he's family. And we love him. And we want what's best for him. So within the church that God intentionally calls a family, the spirit and the idea behind this is I am consistently and lovingly coming to you if I see areas of your life. Now, because I love you, 
Because I want you to grow and I want you to thrive. And if there's something in your life that is an impediment to you or you're going down a path that's going to lead to your destruction or your pain, it is the furthest thing from love to stand back and go, well, it might be better just to keep quiet about it. And let me tell you the other furthest thing from love. I'm going to go talk to 30 people about it, but I'll never go talk to that person about it. That's just not love. Now, this presupposes this whole idea, a high level of commitment within the church family. Just like I said, someone who visits my house or not, is not family, I'm not going to give them a shovel and say, go out and clean up after the dog because they're not family. This presupposes those who are connected, those who are engaged, those who are involved, that we say, man, I've got a level of commitment to you and you've got a level of commitment to me. Biblical fellowship means I'm as committed to your walk with the Lord as I'm committed to my own. And I will do whatever I can do because I love you. It presupposes a level of relationship. Uh, Cold rebuke doesn't often go well. (laughs) It presupposes some type of relationship, some type of trust, some type of connection. But this is how you build trust. This is how you build fellowship. This is how you build community because I love you. This is loving, not condemning. Condemning is the spirit of I, I step back and I observe everybody's sin and here I just want to lob the condemnation bomb in there. That's, all, that, that's not the spirit of this at all. It is loving and not critical spirit. Critical spirit means I see something in your life and deep down in my heart I'm kind of excited about it because it makes me feel better about me. Well, I know this. they're struggling with this. No, there's a grief. You see a brother or sister, you see them making bad choices, or you see them drifting, or you see them struggling, or they have a blind spot and they're making bad decisions, or they're just caught up in sin. Listen, you grieve because you love them. That's what Paul's talking about. Listen, that's a culture that we long for here, not condemnation. Not rules and regulations, not false religion, but love that says I'm going to fight for your walk with the Lord in the same way I would fight for my own. And at times that may mean confrontation that I come to you because I love you. Within a healthy church family, brothers and sisters consistently and lovingly confront sin in one another's lives. So what we're going to do this morning, quickly, before we take the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes, I'm going to ask three questions, and that's it. Why do we confront one another? Why would we do that? Secondly, how do we do it? What does the Bible teach us on this? And then thirdly, and this may be the most important question of the morning, how do you handle it when somebody comes to you? How do you respond to that? So 1 Timothy 5, let me try to answer some of these questions for you, make it really practical for you this morning in the context of a healthy, loving church family. Number one. Why do we confront one another? Let me give you a few reasons. Number one, God commands it. Throughout Scripture, 1 Timothy 5, we just read it. This is our starting point. Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort or appeal to him. Kind of another word for it. In other words, don't go to him sharply. Don't go to him violently. Don't go to him disrespectfully. But you appeal. You exhort as if he were your father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, etc., etc. Loving conversation is a normal part of family life in a church. 
God commands it. Now, are there other places in Scripture that the Bible teaches this or maybe can bring some clarity to this for us so we can learn how to live this out in a, a more biblical way? So throughout Scripture, I'm going to read you three or four verses. You can write these down or look these up if you would want. If you want. A couple other words for correct or confront in the New Testament. There's the word rebuke. There's the word exhort. There's the word admonish. There's the word reprove. Let me start in Psalm 141, verse 5. Go ahead and put that up on the screen. Here's King David. Leader of Israel, sweet psalmist of Israel, a man after God's own heart. He had a desire to grow. He had a desire to be like Christ. And he understood a reality of a brother coming to him. Listen to what he said. Psalm 141, verse 5. Let the righteous smite me in kindness. What does that mean? And reprove me. It's another word for confront or it's another word for come to me. It is oil upon my head. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. I don't want oil on my head. Well, Quaker State Oilers, what does that mean? It didn't make any sense. And that day it was the idea of the anointing of God or the favor of God or a blessing of God. Listen to what David is saying here. He says, if I have a brother within the family of faith who loves me enough to call and point out things in my life that I don't even see, to help me grow, he says, it is oil upon my head. Translation, it is the grace of God. It is a grace in my life. Listen, the Bible is very clear. True friends are very hard to come by. And we'll talk about that more. Proverbs is very clear. A true brother, one who sticks closer than a brother. True friends are very difficult to come up. David says, let a righteous one smite me and come. Let him come and speak into my life and call me out on stuff. Things that I don't even see in my life. Directions I'm going, I need it. I, I long for that because I want to grow. Proverbs 27, and Proverbs talks about this a ton in the context of wisdom. Proverbs 27, verse 5. Go ahead and put that up. This is awesome. He says, better, better is an open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. David says, listen, or the writer of Proverbs, Solomon says, listen, it is better for you to come and be open and vulnerable with me and say to me, man, I've seen this pattern in your life. I love you enough. We have a relationship with one another. I hope you trust me. Here's what I see in your life. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to be honest. It would be better than you secretly in the background saying, I love you, brother. You're doing awesome, brother. I'm going to pray for you. No, come to me and speak to me and help me grow. He says, faithful are the wounds of a true friend. Faithful are the wounds of a person that loves me enough to come and put their arm around me and sit down in a conversation and say, man, I've seen something that maybe you don't even see. Brother, there's a pattern going on. Brother, I see you drifting. I see you struggling. I saw how you dealt with your wife. I saw how you responded to your husband, whatever the case may be. I saw how you treated your kids. I was at your place of employment, and I heard how you spoke to your employees. Are you kidding me? On and on and on. Listen, if you have somebody that loves you enough, the Bible says that is a grace in your life. Thank you. He goes on, Proverbs 27, 17 says this, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. 
graphic metaphoric picture of you put iron against iron. That's how you sharpen weapons in those days, iron against iron. But when you do that, sparks fly. Sometimes this can be heavy and confrontational. It doesn't always have to be. That's not necessarily the idea of it, but sometimes it is. Why? We sharpen one another. Listen, simply an appeasing culture that will never speak in love to one another will not be a healthy and mature and sharp culture. And I'm talking about the church culture. When someone shares something and they say, well, I'm struggling with this, this is sin in my life, and no one comes around and puts their arm around and says, man, I know what you said, but let me, that's not even what the Bible says, bro. What are you talking about? We're not sharpening one another. We're not helping one another. That's why life groups exist. That's why we build these platforms for community. And I know it takes time. And I know it's awkward. And I know sometimes you've got to stay in there and fight. But we want to build a community of trust where I trust you enough for you to speak into my life. Listen, do you know that when we do not confront one another, it does not build a community of trust. It builds a community of suspicion. You say, I don't get that. What do you mean? If you are never honest with me, and you never speak truth to me, I don't know if I can believe anything you say. And you come and tell me what a good job I'm doing, and you come and tell me how everything's great, and man, you're doing such a great job, and you ne- all I know, well, I'm not sure he even means that. It could be just flattery. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You see how countercultural this is? So he goes on, he says, one of the reasons we do this is because the Bible commands it. God commands it. Let me, let me show you one more verse. Matthew 18, 15. Jesus speaks to this, and he says, okay, if your brother sins, again, context of the family, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Now, that's crazy, isn't it? Not Facebook, not in a group setting, not, not, you know, not a prayer group. You go to your brother in private. You say, sometimes I'm not sure when I should go to them or not. Let me tell you when I definitely know you need to go to them. If you're talking to more than one person about that person and you haven't gone to them, it's time to go to them. Man, this is health for a church family. He says, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've warned your brother. Then he goes on and talks about the progression. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So Jesus commands it. It's obvious that the Bible says it's better for an open rebuke than love that is concealed. That's what the Bible is calling us to do in love. And man, we need it. I need it. So the Bible commands it. Number two, love demands it. Okay, what does that mean? Let me give you a couple verses on that. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Love, context of love, 1 Corinthians 13, says this. You may have had this in your wedding. Really famous passage. Love, verse 6, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. In other words, if I see sin in your life and I'm not coming to you because I love you, I can't call that love. Love wants what's best for you. Love loves you enough to say, I will come and confront you about texting and driving. My son, for example, that's an example, because I, I love him. Secondly, Proverbs 27.6. I, I just read that. Go on to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 says this. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. 
He even says to not rebuke and to not confront is tantamount to hate. It's not love. And then Jesus says in Revelation 3.19, this is incredible. He says, I correct and I discipline everyone I love. It's a great parenting verse. (laughs) Kids don't like that verse very much. Obviously, it can be done in anger. It can be over the top. It can be done in the wrong manner. But loving correction and discipline from a parent to a child is something sorely needed in our day. Jesus says, listen, those I love, those who are mine, those who I've drawn to myself and called out as my own, I discipline and I correct them. Why? Because I love them. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Love demands it. Love demands it. Thirdly, our deceptive heart needs it. Jeremiah 17, 9, a pretty well-known verse says this, The heart, whose heart? Mine, yours. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Proverbs 16, 25 says, There is a way which seems right. It looks right. It sounds right. I've convinced myself that it's right. I can give you a reason that it's right. But its end is the way of death. So what does that mean? You and I have the incredible capacity of self-deception. Self-deception. I'm at that stage as a parent. I have an 18-year-old and I have a 15-year-old son. Josh, my oldest, is driving. We've already talked about that. My second son, Joseph, is learning to drive. One of the things that you have to teach a young driver, and you know this, is when you're driving along, you look in your mirror, your rearview mirror, and there's nothing there. But actually, there is a car beside you because the car is tucked away in your blind spot. Every driver knows about blind spots. Your mirrors will lie to you because your mirrors don't reveal the whole picture. In the same way, you and I have blind spots in our lives that we can't even see. And God has placed us within a community of loving brothers and sisters who I guarantee can see it better than you can. And says, when you see it, When you see the blind spot, when you see that car on my left flank and I'm getting ready to cut over into that car, would you love me enough to come to me and say, you're deceived, there's a deception, it's a blind spot, you don't even see it. There's a way which seems right to a man, but the way you're following, it's going to lead to death. Would you love me enough? Because my heart deceives itself, right? Well, live there. Blind spots. So the Bible commands this. Love demands this. And our deceptive heart needs it. My deceptive heart needs it. Secondly, let me try to answer this question. Okay, so why would we do this? Then secondly, really quick, how? How do we go about this? Okay, because this is an area that's, that's easily abused. It's an area that's easily neglected. 
So how do we go about this? I'm going to give you five words really quick. 1 Timothy 5, back where we started, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. The word appeal means to come alongside. Sharply means disrespectfully or even vitally in a way that is not honorable. First word is this, respectfully. In an honoring way, I honor you, I value you, you matter to me. I'm coming, I'm not speaking down to you. This is not self-righteous Phariseeism that says, look how holy I am and you're not. No, I'm a brother struggling too. But man, there's some things in your life I don't even think you see. I'm going to come alongside you. Second is the word redemptively. What does that mean? Galatians 6.1, put that up there. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. The word restore means put back together, to set again. It's the idea of you don't just expose, you don't just confront, you then walk alongside to restore and to build back and to put back together. So there's respectfully, there's redemptively, thirdly, with humility. That's an important one, right? Galatians 6.1, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Rest of the verse, but watch yourselves. Watch out, or you also may be tempted. The idea is before I rush into a conversation with someone, and before I'm you know, the junior Holy Spirit, and I'm so quickly pointing out everything in your life, Lord, before I go to that brother, I'm going to stop and get before you in the Word of God and pray. I'm going to say, God, point out anything in my life. Lord, is this area, is this what I, is this thing that I see so clearly in his life, what's this, is the reason I see it so clearly in their life is because I'm struggling with it and don't even realize it. In humility. Jesus, man, Jesus gives a great illustration about this. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking to some of the disciples and others. And he, in the context of loving confrontation, he says this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a log or a plank or a tree hanging out of your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is actually funny. It's very serious, but it's funny. He says, I'm coming, and I'm removing this little speck of sawdust, and the whole time I'm removing this speck of sawdust, there's a big tree hanging out of my own eye. That's silly, but we do that. If we're so quick to rebuke and so quick to reprove before we say, Lord, show the speck, the log in my own eye, then guess what? We're living hypocritically. So respectfully, we're to do this redemptively. We're to do this with humility. Two more words. Number four, truthfully. Now this is huge. Truthfully. In other words, the motivation for correction or rebuke or reproof is not, is not, is not rooted in my own opinion or preference. I'm not going to my brother because they do something differently than I did it. 
Or I'm not going to my brother because it's an area of opinion. Well, here's the way I like it. They're doing it a different way. I better go talk to them. Let me give you an example from Scripture. Matthew 16. You can just kind of follow along. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Peter. Everybody knows Peter, right? Everybody loves Peter because Peter had a really good tendency to stick his foot in his mouth and say things before he really thought through it. So Peter's talking to Jesus, all right? That's the context. Jesus says, okay, guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. The, the disciples were kind of befuddled at that point. They hadn't put it all together. They thought the Messiah is here. He's going to establish his kingdom. We're going to reign with him. We're going to be part of his cabinet. We're going to have authority now. And Jesus says, oh, I'm going to die. I didn't sign up for that. What are you talking about? So Peter, voicing the thought of the disciples, comes to Jesus, Matthew 16, 22, and says, Peter took him aside, that's Jesus, and began to rebuke him. And says, never, Lord. This is never going to happen to you. What are you talking about? You're going to die? So here's Peter rebuking Jesus, right? Now watch. The problem is not that Peter was being confrontational or rebuking. The problem is the reason he was doing it. What was the source of his rebuke? Jesus tells us. Next verse. Jesus turned and said, Peter, get behind me, man. Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) That's pretty blooded. You Satan, get behind me. You are a stumbling block to me. Why? Watch this. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, Peter, your motivation is your own preference, your own opinion, the way you see it, and not Scripture. Not the truth. Peter had his own personal preference. Peter had his own plan, and Jesus wasn't aligning up with it, and he went and rebuked him. Listen to me. The Bible is not calling you to challenge, correct, and confront one another because of opinions or because of preferences. Listen, before I ever even arrived at this church five and a half years ago, I received a sharp rebuke in written form from a gentleman in this church who called me out and rebuked me, you ready, because I had a beard. And the second rebuke, there were a lot of them, the second one was because I didn't wear a tie when I preached. Now listen to me. You may not agree with that, and you may not like that, and I get it, but here's the deal. Try to back that up with Scripture. You can't do it. It's a preference. It's an opinion. If you fall over into that realm, then you start falling into the realm of legalism and speaking with authority where the Bible doesn't speak at all. The source of it is Scripture. Bro, I see an area of your life you're not lining up with the Word of God. Not that you're not doing it my way. Not that you're not following my opinion or my preference. Scripture. To do otherwise, according to Jesus, you become a stumbling block to the person and not beneficial or helpful to them. See that? So we do it truthfully. We do it humbly. And then fifthly and lastly, we do it appropriately. We confront, we go, we encourage, we admonish, we do it appropriately. One verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Paul, we urge you, brothers and sisters admonish strong word confront who the unruly 
The word unruly means those that are out of line, those that have gone completely away from Scripture, those that are drifting, those that are on their own. Then he says, encourage the faint-hearted. Who's that? Faint-hearted means those that are, those that are without courage. It's not necessarily that they're willingly rebellious or something like that. I mean, they're just, they're just discouraged. He says, you come alongside them and you encourage them. You put your arm around them. Then he says, help the weak. The word weak means those who are ready to quit. Those who are in such a place in life, they have just given up almost. You don't go into them with a sharp rebuke. You don't go into them with admonishment. You go into them, Paul says, help the weak. The word help means to lift up, to hold up. And in that, he says, be patient with everyone. All of it in a spirit of patience. The Bible says, love is patient. Love. Fervently love one another. So we do this because the Bible calls us to do it. It's love. We do this in a manner that maybe some things I gave you here will help you. And then our time's up. I'm going to ask one final question, and we're going to close with this. All right, Pastor Mike, so I hear this, and yeah, it's tough, and yeah, we want to grow in this, and I really want to love my brother and sister this way. Final question for you is this. Okay. When someone comes to you, and someone lovingly challenges you, and someone lovingly maybe calls out an area of your life in love, how do you respond? How do you respond? See, Proverbs speaks a, a lot about this. I'm going to show you one verse, and we're finished. Proverbs 9, put up on the screen, says this. So don't bother correcting mockers or fools. They'll only hate you. The word mocker is the person who won't listen, the person who's unteachable, the person who's set on their own way, and they don't really want to listen to what anybody has to say to help them. Verse 8, but correct the wise, and they'll love you. Paul said, or the writer of Proverbs, there's wisdom that says, okay, I want to grow. I recognize my blind spots. I realize my weakness. I understand I'm in a family of faith. I'm in a setting. And I'm going to play, what's this? I'm going to place myself within the context of healthy relationships and invite people to speak into my life because they love me. Why? Verse 9, instruct the wise and they'll be even wiser. Teach the righteous and they'll learn even So when we're confronted, we can either be offended or we can be strengthened. We can be bitter or we can grow from it. And that's a gift that God has given us and what it means to be part of a family. I'm going to ask the team to come on up and we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper this morning. Our response time this morning to what you've heard and however the Lord may be working in your heart is going to be this. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together in just a moment. And if you're new here and you don't know what the Lord's Supper is all about, let me tell you really quick what that's going to look like and then we're going to have a time of prayer and you preparing and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So the Lord's Supper is given to a church, a local church just like this. Jesus, when he gathered with his disciples the night before he was crucified, he said, okay, guys, for generations to generations to come, when the people of God come together, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna do this, and you're going to take some bread, and you're going to break it, 
as a memorial, a memory of my body that was broken for you. That's why we're doing what we do this morning. Then he took a cup of wine, fruit of the vine. He said, okay, you're going to take this and you're going to drink this wine and in this cup, this fruit of the vine. Don't worry, it's not wine, it's grape juice, fruit of the vine. You're going to take this as a symbol of my blood that's poured out for you. And you're to do that in the context of a family. And you're to do that regularly so that the cross will always be central in a church family. Then Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 spoke to a church and he said, Okay, before you get ready to take the Lord's Supper, use it to remember and then use it to examine. So here's what you're going to do for the next couple of minutes. I'm going to invite you to do this. I'm going to give you a minute right there in your seat to ask the Spirit of God just to examine your heart and your life. Just to take a few moments before you take the Lord's Supper. Lord, is there anything in my life? Is there a blind spot? Lord, is there... Is there anything in my relationship with you that's not right that maybe I'm not even aware of? Or Lord, have I spurned, have I pushed back against brothers and sisters speaking in my life? Or watch this, Lord, have I run from true fellowship because I don't want people speaking into my life? Or Lord, is there a brother and sister that I haven't loved enough to go to them and call out their blind spot because I love them? may be here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's table as we call it, is for believers. It doesn't save you. It doesn't take away sin. Only Jesus does that. Your step this morning is to, by faith, receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He died in your place. He rose from the dead to give you life. And you can receive Him this morning by faith. Parents, if you're here with a young child that doesn't know Jesus, we ask you to use this as a teaching opportunity for that young child of why they're not ready to take the Lord's Supper. An opportunity for you to explain to them what it means to know Christ and that the Lord's Supper is a symbol of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. So this morning, in just a moment, I'm going to say a word of prayer for you. I'm going to give you some time right there in your seat to do as the Lord says, to examine our hearts. Spirit of God, examine our hearts. You may even need to say, Lord, there's a conversation I'm going to have with a brother and sister right when we leave here. I have bitterness in my heart because someone came to me or whatever it is. Spirit of God, work in our hearts this morning. Just bow your heads. Moment of prayer. Spirit of worship. I'm going to pray for you. Just a second. And we'll celebrate the Lord's table together. for my brothers and sisters. I pray for myself. I pray for this family. But God, you you work here a, a culture, an atmosphere of loving, consistent challenge and encouragement and correction and admonition in the spirit of love to make us stronger and healthier more like you so we can live on mission and we can persevere and we can walk with you for your glory I pray you prepare our hearts now Lord we're honest with you we're honest with each other as we take the Lord's table and the Lord's supper now in Jesus name I pray Amen.